Hey folks, it's Jeff Wenzel from the Woodshed Agency, and you are listening to my podcast called Successfully Funded. Here we go. Let's turn it up. Yeah! All right, crowdfunders, how is everybody doing out there in crowdfunding land? I hope everybody is having an awesome week. Uh, hopefully you guys' campaigns are going well, or if you're getting ready to launch them, you've got all your ducks in a row. So... Like I said, I'm Jeff Wenzel, and this is my podcast. Uh, it's called Successfully Funded, and, and our goal here on this podcast is to deconstruct successfully funded campaigns, and I try to talk to the project creators while their campaign is actively running. Uh, you know, And our goal is to make sure that you, the listener, are getting the most up-to-date tools and techniques that are going on in crowdfunding um, because this landscape is changing so much. So, you know, we, we decided that, you know, yes, we write some blogs here and there or we put them up and, and we have some advice there, but, you know, we don't want that, that information to get stale. And, and so much of the info out there is, you know, it might be a year old. And I'll tell you, things are changing so rapidly that what worked, you know, in 2015 uh, may or may not be working right now. And that's why we, we, we wanted, to have, wanted to create this podcast for, you know, so that people out there are getting the most up-to-date information um, as humanly possible. So coming up on today's episode, um, I had a talk with a real go-getter, a real true, uh, you know, entrepreneur. His name is David Papp. Uh, and, and he has a campaign right now for Uberstack's color expansion. And these are universal game piece holders. And I know that that was probably a mouthful and you were like, I'm sorry, what? So, you know, really imagine, you know, somebody who's, who, who, you know, might be having trouble holding a deck of cards. Um, you know, this product, uh, helps people like that. Or if you are, you know, have, you know, doing a lot of tabletop games and you've got a lot of pieces and you want to keep them organized, uh, this, this product goes from there. So definitely a very niche product, which is, again, why I was so excited to have this conversation because, you know, it's not, you know, and I think David would agree with me on this. It's not a huge, gigantic, fancy Kickstarter project, but it's a great niche product that really highlights why I love Kickstarter so much. It really gives an entrepreneur a chance to go out, validate their product, get it in front of eyeballs, and really see you know, what its potential might be. And we get into that a lot in this conversation, David and I, just in terms of, um, you know, how do you know when you're working on a product like this, how far to go down the rabbit hole, right? How much are you going to invest your personal money or your personal time in? And, and that was really, I thought, one of the, one of the most important parts of this conversation. So, so like I said, that's coming up a little bit later, but, um, you know, a little bit more on, on something going on here, man. You know, I know I talk about this. It feels like almost every week in these intros, but my daughter did not sleep again last night. I, I'll be frank. Right now, it's about nine in the morning on Wednesday, and this is when I'm recording this intro, and, and you'll be getting this Thursday if, if you're listening on Thursday or, you know, you're listening to it whenever. But uh, this is the day before that I launched these, and I'm telling you right now, my daughter got up at two, and I was up with her the entire night, and she didn't sleep. And I don't know how she's doing it, right? She's just powering through. Now, granted, she was asleep from about maybe 5.30 on. But what's been happening to me waking up at 2, 3 in the morning is, um, you know, I might get her back to bed, but my brain is not shutting off. And, and 
and I'll tell you, I'm doing a lot of productivity hacks. You know, I, I'm trying to limit screen time after about 10 p.m., you know, so that there's about an hour, you know, trying to go to bed a little bit earlier, you know, just trying to really decompress. And, and I'm telling you, but, but when I wake up, 2, 3 in the morning, my brain is just firing on all cylinders. And last night, exact same thing. So I'm completely wired in space right now. Completely like eyes are half open, you know, um, just powering through in a nutshell, just kind of waiting for a noon because then I'm going to go have a little uh, Coca-Cola with my lunch and, and maybe then get me a pick-me-up because uh, I'm not a coffee drinker. Um, but man, I have never been in a situation that's more torturous than what I am I'm in right now where my daughter did sleep all through Monday night, but not last night, you know, not Sunday night. And I'm telling you, and my wife's up too, so this isn't me saying, it's only me, it's only me. It is impacting everything. So, yeah, sleep, where are you? I'm trying to get to you. But, you know, so something, I had a moment the other day that I really, truly had, I'll I'll be frank, I broke down in tears um, watching a a Facebook video. And I, I can tell you, that's not something that happens often um, with me um, or with probably a lot of people. <laughs> um, but I was so moved. And I'm going to play the video, um, the audio from the video, because it, it, it'll still do its justice. But the video was about the Chapani yogurt, the Chapani yogurt, right? How the owner gave all of his employees stock basically, in the company before it went public. And the outpour and the admiration and, you know, I'll use the word love, it, I literally, I literally just broke down. So let me go ahead and play this. I want to play this audio, and it's only, it's about a minute and a half long, but I think it's really, really, really powerful. So, so let, let's actually hear that right now. In the modern workplace, hugging the boss may not be the first instinct of many employees. Oh my God! But there were hugs aplenty this morning at the Chobani yogurt plant in upstate New York. Company founder Hamdi Ulakaya made an announcement. We used to work together. Now we are partners. Real partners, financial partners. Ulakaya is giving his employees a 10% stake in the company when it goes public or is sold. It's a windfall that could be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars each. That's amazing. Amazing. Who does that? Completely unexpected. Um, I think that everyone is so excited. That's two plants and more than 2,000 employees. A move more Silicon Valley than upstate New York. Why do this? You know, it's been my dream. I'd like to get back to them and say, you and this community and this country has been so great to us, and I'd like to return that favor back to you. The success of Chobani, a brand not 10 years old but worth billions, could only happen in America, says Ulukaya, an immigrant from Turkey who started with nothing. You can always tell yourself that I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, but truly believe in it is a miracle. Maybe the miracle is that they all believed. Terry Edmonds is employee number six. I think about how little we started and how hard all these people worked to, to bring this to what we have. And I'm very proud. 
The money means a lot, say these folks, but being appreciated means even more. Harry Smith, NBC News, New Berlin. So, God, just just listening to it right there, just I'm, I'm like I'm I'm speechless. I'm I'm choked up, and and the reason that I think this story hit me so much is. I truly, truly have been so thankful for the people that have, you know, either gotten on um, the journey with um, with me with some of these ideas from, you know, uh, starting, you know, with my parents, um, you, you know, buying me a Mac computer to be able to record audio to taking out a, um, a personal loan, um, uh, you know, f- finding the people in the bands, you know, musicians who got behind me and, and, and really supported an idea and, and, and always behind the scenes. Um, you know, I, I've always wanted to, you know, really at some point be able to give back to these people in a huge, huge, you know, I wouldn't say monetary, but just in some way. Um, and, and it, you know, uh, you know, moving into people like Sean, who's been in uh, in my life for 10, 12 years now, and, you know, my wife, um, you know, these people who have sacrificed things and who have, you know, um, blindly listened at some point to an idea or a dream and, and to hear what this, what this, you know, what this video clip, you know, what it, what it was saying, you know, why, why aren't all companies working this way? That's how I would dream about working. You know, if Woodshed were to, you know, take out, you know, get even bigger or better than what we are right now. And, and that's the goal. I mean, that's why I'm driving to, to, to be able to, you know, at some point look at Sean and Paul and say, thank you for, you know, going on this journey with me, you know, thank you. Um, and, and it's not that it's all just me. It's just that it takes everybody working hard and believing in an idea. And if we had more of that, what would be happening with entrepreneurs around here and ideas and Kickstarters and crowdfunding campaigns? What if everybody got behind these things and looked at them with this sort of eyeball? I, I, I just personally have not been as moved as I have been. I mean, literally, I watched it just walk, you know, after dinner and I had to go in my bedroom because I was bawling, crying because of um, how amazing of a story that was to me how good it was, how honest, how um, just touching, you know, and, it, you know, I watched that a couple of days ago, made a note to, to talk about it on the episode today and, and to just kind of get away from, from jokey, you know, jokey type stuff and, and, and stuff about me, but just really, really say thank you, you know, take this time on, on the podcast to thank, you know, all the band members back in the Sugar People days, right? All the people that, that worked, you know, took time out of their lives to, you know, to play a song, re- rehearse a song, um, write a song, um, you know, all the way into Groovebox Studios days, the interns we had that helped out on sessions, um, you know, Kevin Elise, these people that were, you know, very, very helpful um, for periods of time. And, um you know, and then obviously, you know, thanking the support that's always around me, thanking my wife and thanking Sean and Paul right now for, for all the hard work they're putting in with our clients and, and the phone calls and the, you know, um, you know, 
not having money sometime, then having money and, and that sort of up and down and, and the sacrifices that they're all making. So I just really wanted to take this time to say thank you to everybody in my life. I want to, you know, really want to also, you know, say, say thank you to all the entrepreneurs out there who are running Kickstarter campaigns, you know, who are putting yourself out there. Um, you know, thanking a guy like David Pat for taking time out of his day to, you know, to share his knowledge to, to, uh, to the crowdfunding community. You know, all of these things, they really do add up. And I think it's important to just take a minute and just, you know, be, be thankful for everything. So, all right. I think that's enough of me, um, you know, kind of being a little sappy this morning, being tired and sappy. But, you know, every time in, in this part of the conversation, before I kick it to our, my interview, um, I, I do want to, re, you know, remind some people out there of some other things going on um, in the Woodshed Agency camp and, and in my camp. So, um, you know, we've got a great blog. Again, a lot of good information on it. Uh, if you want to go to that, uh, you know, subscribe to it. Because, you know, put that RSS feeder in, in whatever you're using, Feedly or actually, I don't even know, Burner. I think that was the other one. Um, uh, so go go there, you know, check it out, woodshed.agency, and then just click on the blog section and you'll find a bunch of stuff. If you really want to deep dive and, and get access to me, Sean and Paul, right, the founders of Woodshed, if you want access to us, it's very simple. Just sign up for our Slack channel, ask questions, um, you know, put your projects in there. You can get some, you know, just more eyeballs on it and we're we're accessible and and that's something that we wanted to to do is which agency is just you know be transparent and be out there and you know um flaws and all right so if you want to join just go again go to the the website woodshed.agency click on join our community sign up and it's free and there is a really really great strong community of crowdfunders in there um you know discussing crowdfunding flat out and deep diving into these conversations more. So um, also, if you're enjoying the podcast and you know you think you've got somebody out there that would also enjoy it, please, please send it to somebody. Share this. Share this out on Facebook and, and, and whatnot. So, all right. Let's go ahead and kick into my conversation with David about his uh, kick, very successful Kickstarter campaign called Uberstack. So here we go. David, I really want to uh, thank you a lot for uh, taking some time to coming on the podcast and talking about your uh, successfully funded Kickstarter campaign as of right now. But um, I was wondering if you can go ahead and just tell uh, my listeners exactly what your campaign is about. Uh, Yeah, Jeff. Um, My campaign is uh, a game accessory for traditional games. We're talking tabletop card games, tile-based games. Um, th- this is the, we'll call it the, the world of the social gaming versus the people who play online electronically. So uh, where this idea came from is I play so many games where, uh, like I love tabletop games and I play it all the time with my family for my entire life and I play it with my kids as well. And 
you'd have an issue every now and then when you, you have either limited table space that you're dealing with or you've got a lot of tiles. And, you know, with younger kids or with, uh, say, people who have dexterity issues or elderly, they can't quite hold all of their cards. So they tend to lay them down like the kids and they say, don't look at my cards, you know, and, and right. you're, you, you want them to be able to play and enjoy it, but they can't just quite maneuver, manipulate all of these things. So the analogy, what I did is I created a, a, a rack set system. But not just any rack system. This is a stacking and expandable rack system that you can grow vertically, you can grow horizontally, you can turn it into a shelf-based system, you can it acts as a platform, as a base for itself. And and the analogy I would use is like if you've ever played Scrabble or something like that, and it has something that holds the little uh, Scrabble tiles. Mm-hmm. So the idea here is that I wanted something that could adapt and be used on any game and could expand to whatever size you wanted and could have tiers that you could hold things. You can use it for community-based cards where everybody needs to see it. You can use it for privately holding things that only you can see. It even frees up your hands for drinks and snacks and stuff like that, you know, while you're doing gameplay. So it's it's been fantastic. And I my very first Kickstarter on this was actually last year. So the big thing when you're doing uh, this kind of thing, and, and the reason I loved it is it was a single piece of plastic. It's a universal piece, and it does everything that I've described. Like, you only need the, the one piece, and you just stack it however you want. The problem is, in order to produce this in a cost-effective manner, you need to get a process done called injection molding. Mm-hmm. And injection molding is has very high quantities you have to get the molds made to begin with, and those are expensive. And then once you have that, then you actually have to rent machine time where they drop these plastic pellets in and it melts it inside these clamshell uh, injection molds that open and close, open and close, and basically it's it's creating this piece that you want um, it's because it's made out of plastic, right. of course, for mine. Yeah. Right. So where did you end up having to go to get that process started? You know, f- before the first campaign, because because we should let our listeners know that this is the second campaign, and this is the campaign that's active right now. Is correct me if I'm wrong. It's an expansion to the uh, to the original campaign, correct? Absolutely. So, uh, like like most Kickstarter uh, uh, creators will tell you, your very first campaign is extremely enlightening, and you learn a a lot of stuff that you would you would implement differently if you were ever to do it again. <laughs> right. Yep. Um, and I had the when I for my thing I had prototyped using 3D printing, which is amazing. But I realized it was very expensive and I wasn't going to mass produce it. So I I ended up going and this is my secret. I went on to uh, sites like Alibaba and AliExpress. Mm. So this is these are gateways, the Amazons of the uh, of the Asian world, where you know China, uh, Vietnam, Singapore, Hong Kong, all of these places where the big factories are located, and you can communicate with these people and. I ended up um, with a with a lot of trial and error and communication back and forth and you know trying to bridge that barrier the language barrier I was able to find a factory that I could work with to produce my pieces and create my molds on on, on somewhat of a cost effective basis but it still wasn't something that I wanted to personally fund myself because sure. it was very expensive and and I didn't know if my idea was going to fly right like mm-hmm. would other people like this as much as I liked it so, uh, hence the first Kickstarter. Um, during the process of the first Kickstarter, though, I, 
I it wasn't as it didn't latch on as big as I was hoping. Like not as many people found out about it. And throughout the past year, people are like, "Oh man, I wish I'd known about this and oh, I wish I could have been part of that Kickstarter and you know, you really should do these other colors because people are now <clears throat> wanting additional colors to match their player pieces. Uh, on the games that they're playing, it's quite interesting. Right. I would have never guessed that when I first created this. Yeah, that, that's uh, that's intriguing. Um, now, now, when you went down that route, did you have, you know, any concerns with working with China factories and patents and and that that sort of underbelly world that that exists now? Was that ever a concern that was in, uh, that you were just, that you were thinking about it before you went down this route? Oh, it absolutely was. And uh, the interesting thing about patents, and I did explore it, and I did pay a lawyer for some initial consultation, is that um, you have one year from when you launch your idea to the world in order to do something with it. Uh, that's number one. And number two, uh, the clock doesn't really start ticking until you've released it to the world. Mm -hmm. So patents don't really become a problem until you actually launch your Kickstarter campaign and you've officially told the world about your invention. Um, I was definitely concerned about it, but over time I realized, you know, I'm talking small potatoes here. If somebody's going to rip me off and take my idea, I guess they could do it, but I still wanted to do it for myself. And the, the costs behind the patent process were so prohibitive that unless my Kickstarter really took off, I could use part of the funds from that in order to fund it. But otherwise, I'll tell you, I'm not really concerned with this. It's it's still something I'm doing for fun. This is not what I do full time. Right, right. So so maybe we can we can talk a little bit about that. So how do you manage time, um, you know, with a full time career? Because uh, to, even to do the project, you know, well, right? And you've, you've built now two successfully campaigns. The, the pages look great. Obviously, there's a ton, ton of time. Um, how do you balance time? <laughs> so uh, that's a really good question. Uh, I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, it's in my blood. I have been ever since I was 14. I've never actually worked for anybody. And um, so I, I, it's something that I constantly uh, am, am honing my skills at time management, task management, and whatnot. So I'm just used to it. This was something that I wasn't in a rush to do. Uh, my prototyping, just so you know, Jeff, took a year and a half wow. before I was happy with my uh, with the the CAD file that I ended up with for my design that I was using. And then I took a, uh, several months to research uh, finding the injection molding, the factory and whatnot, and building up that, that campaign on Kickstarter. So when you build a Kickstarter campaign, it's really graphics design. Uh, you're, if you can find any friends that are good at web design, it's very much up their alley and it's online marketing. So, and that's where I didn't pay enough attention to on my first campaign and I really focused on my second campaign. And, and the results are there. I mean, I still have two weeks to go and I've almost doubled what I've, uh, received on my first campaign already right. you know i mean i passed my first campaign in the first day like it was funded in 10 hours mm -hmm. yeah so, we, we, we'll let everybody know too you're you're you know you've what more than tripled your uh, goal amount at the moment oh yeah we're at uh, 350 percent yep. right now yep. and we're not done yeah exactly so so this is awesome and the the key there and i'm gonna t uh, here's another secret uh, I made use of a service called Thunderclap, mm -hmm. and Thunderclap was to help create that snowball effect. Because here's what I learned. 
you can drive a whole bunch of people to Kickstarter to back your idea. And we call those external referrers. Those are people you send from your mailing list, your family, your friends to help you out on your campaign. But that does nothing to get the awareness out for other people out there. And I really clued in that if I needed to be able to to get visibility on Kickstarter's website itself to other backers that, that are not part of my circle, I had to make this thing trend. Right. I had right. to make it show that it was successful and that was worthy of Kickstarter to suddenly show it in their discover tool as something that was trending, that was hot, that was, you know, in my, speci- in my can- uh, case, it was in the tabletop game category. I really wanted it to show up. And actually, for the first 48 hours, I floated between page one and page two on the tabletop games category. And that's what really led to the success of this. Like, I knew that from my first campaign that that was going to be critical on this campaign to focus on creating that snowball effect and getting it to trend. Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, before we dive way into the actual Kickstarter strategy, let's let's talk a little bit about you. So um, where did you grow up? Uh, I'm uh, 100% uh, Canadian. <laughs> nice. I've uh, I've grown up in a city called Edmonton. We are the largest city in North America. Uh, that's the furthest north. We have a population over a million um, in Edmonton, Alberta. We're we're essentially the Texas of um, of Canada. Uh, is Long the time to drive Alberta. across, we're, right? <laughs> yeah, an oil-based economy. Yep. Um, my my background is actually uh, I'm a computer engineer. I went to university and have an engineering degree. And uh, I, I got very much involved in information technology management, um, running internet service providers back in the day. I founded some companies doing consulting, troubleshooting, and uh, ended up really latching onto this internet thing because it was fascinating to me, everything about it, like mm-hmm. creating web pages, online marketing. To me, that stuff is like, it's kind of like the Wild West for business right now, in my opinion. And people are realizing that you can't use traditional media anymore to succeed. Yeah, 100%. So, so because you've mentioned that you have that sort of entrepreneur spirit, what did your parents do? <laughs> my parents actually helped encourage it. So very, very early on in life, they bought me one of our first uh, family personal computers. And back then, they were very expensive. You know, it was like $5,000 to have this thing that did text running, you know, and you'd loaded cassette tapes into this. But to me, it was fascinating. I was controlling something that was appearing on my TV, Mm -hmm. you know, and on the boob tube, like the old fashioned uh, uh, screens. And, and, and to be able to do stuff and to manipulate it was, this was before console games even came out. Like, it was just absolutely fascinating. And then when I went to, uni- when, be- sorry, before that, then I got involved in bulletin board systems. And this is kind of a precursor to commercial internet. And that's where people would log on and they share files and have forms and information. And I actually hosted one and ran one for many years. And I was fascinated by this connectedness, like connecting computers together and passing files around the world. And when I went to university early on, and again, this is still pre-commercial internet, um, I was given my first account on the educational networks, which was the internet back then, and connecting to file servers located around the world. And I thought, man, this is exactly what I am interested in and want to get in on. So that's 
Uh, my parents fostered that throughout. They helped me with my first business when I was an entrepreneur. Um, back then, I was building and reselling used computers for people so that it could make it affordable for people to have it in their households. And it was my side business, and it just funded my hobby of being able to buy other computer stuff for myself. Like, it was just a self-funded hobby doing this and learning while I was going along. Cool. So did, did your parents own a business, or what did they do for, uh, for jobs? Uh, no, my mom was a teacher and my dad's a doctor, um, though very much you could say that doctors are entrepreneurs on their own because they have to run their own practices. Um, but um, I, they, I, I guess I, I was first born in, in my family of, amongst all my siblings. And uh, as a firstborn, you tend to um, have to pave the way and you tend to be the first person to do everything. You're the first one to get a car, first one to get a driver's license, first one to go on a date, first one to yep. get married, first one, you know, generally speaking, first, first one to have kids. And then that breaking first, I think, really reinforces, you know, fostering somebody into being an entrepreneur. So, so as you're kind of, um, you know, sitting back and, and you know, struggling while you're playing games, right? You know, to, to uh, holding or starting to see this kind of pop in your head, this kind of, you know, this, this idea of the stacking, you know, when did you really feel like, boy, I think there's something here that I should start to investigate. And, and how did you know to just trust your instincts to, you know, to basically go down this rabbit hole? <laughs> That's a really good point. Um, so, my early on prototypes were made out of wood that I carved uh, myself in my garage and I would bring them out during certain games and family and friends would be, hey, this is really cool. Mm -hmm. So then 3D printing suddenly emerged and, and became quite affordable to play with. And so I found myself, somebody locally, there are services online where you can find guys who are good at it. I didn't want to spend the time trying to figure out how to do these CAD drawings myself. Right, right. I found somebody who loved his 3D printer and just wanted an excuse to be able to make stuff. So yeah. I worked with him and I paid him. Um, and that at that point, I was kind of crossing a line almost because I was starting to invest in my idea by paying somebody else to assist me to develop it, right? Because, sure. you know, I was saying, let's change this, let's change that. And then at uh, at one point when I was done with that, I thought, wow, I need to do something with this. And so I decided let's do a um, a Kickstarter campaign because at that point it was not actually open to people in Canada. It was only for creators in the U.S. And it was around that same time frame. So I thought, well, I'm going to do this. And so um, I decided that if I set the limit, the funding goal on the Kickstarter campaign to be such that I could live with it, like I could actually make it happen if it hit that funding goal – then it was safe. So if you don't hit your funding goal, it doesn't happen, and I don't go further down the rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. If it does, then it's a sure sign that, you know, it's happening and you're going to do this thing. And it was very clear on my first campaign, because my first campaign was actually funded in the first two days, the first 48 hours, and I just, I jumped on it. Like, I, I thought, this is it. This is awesome. I'm going to do this. It's becoming a reality. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was pretty cool. Yeah, it must be. Uh, I mean, I know from from all the campaigns I've worked on, just that moment when you see other people getting it, you know, it, it, it's just such an overwhelming experience. Um, and, and especially on your end, you know, you've got a healthy amount of backers, you know, so people that are are supporting this and are into it. 
So let's let's dive in a little bit into actual Kickstarter strategy. So obviously you mentioned Thunderclap and 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 you know those the strong first you know two days basically. You know what did you do kind of leading up for the first months though um, as you're kind of wrapping your marketing strategy around um, basically probably the original campaign and then what changed into this campaign. Okay, uh, that's a good note. Uh, I, I read a lot of the forums and posts online because there's a lot of really good information online to try to get further ideas and try to build upon the ideas for my first one. So timing is everything. For me, it was what days of the month did I want my campaign to start and what day of the month did I want it to end? And typically you want to, as what I've heard, and it seemed to work for me, you want that to coincide fairly similarly with paydays yep. where people actually get some money. The time of day makes a difference as well for the markets you're going in. I was going primarily after a North American market. Therefore, I wanted to make sure that my start date and my end dates coincided with people being awake and available at their computer. Yet, I knew that a secondary market for me was Europe. Mm -hmm. Therefore, adding another six or eight hours on top of my time zone, I had to make sure that they were still, you know, maybe in the later hours of their evening, but they were still available as well for when this stuff happens. And so that's kind of how I picked my dates. And and I, I looked at my calendar, and it sounds goofy, Jeff, but I had to make sure that it worked with my personal life, and I actually put it on my family calendar so that my family was aware that uh, this is when my campaign was launching and this is when it was ending and I was going to be unavailable for other, you know, fatherly duties because I needed to focus on my campaign during those times. So you want to make sure that you take that into consideration. The other thing is uh, is building up that thunderclap and, and, and talking to people to get things ready. Graphics, the video, people are like, you know, you need a good idea for a video. Do you have your video available? And then, and then the whole thinking about the backer rewards. So now, in in my mind, Jeff, I was like, man, I better make sure that my or my factory in China is still available. <laughs> right. You know, they're still there. They still have my molds. My contact is still there. So I opened all of that communication. You know, well before I started this campaign to make sure that I wasn't going to shoot myself in the foot and have to start from from square one again. Right. And and that the that everything was there in order to make this work out. Yeah, you're, 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 you're walking through a to-do list, and I know you probably have 40 other things that you had to do on this to-do list. I do. <laughs> yeah, there's just so many things. You know, one of the things I thought was that you did a really good job in the video, and I wonder if this comes from kind of your digital marketing background a little bit from, from what I looked at online. You know, your video really showed like a problem and a solution quickly. And I was wondering if, if, if you had that in your mind when you went into to make this video. Initially, I didn't, because uh, when you... When you're doing a video, you're like, oh, man, what am I going to do? And and a lot of them, some people say that you should do the talking head video. And what I mean by that is it's like a video of me talking and explaining why I did this to make it more real. And I thought, you know, that's that's fine. But it didn't it didn't excite me. Mm -hmm. And I thought I wanted to do something different. So I thought, what am I trying to achieve here? I'm trying to release new colors that people have been really bugging me about that they wanted to have. And so I thought. Why don't I make it comical? And that's what I did on my video. And I went in my garage and I I went and bought a whole bunch of different spray paint colors matching the new colors I want to release. And I basically made it look like somebody frustrated was making these things up themselves because they really wanted it. And, And then... 
Uh, that was the first part of my video. So like you said, what is the problem and how am I addressing it and addressing it by releasing these official new colors? But then I still added to the end of my video an explanation of what is UberStacks? Exactly. Like, how, what is my product? Because I want to make sure that people still realized uh, and understood for the new people of what is this product and how does it apply to them? So on that note, the original video had been something that I've worked on for quite a while for the last year. And we've refined by getting better shots of the product, the product in use and action. And then I went on Fiverr, literally, and I got somebody to do a voiceover for me. I gave them the script. And that way I had that professional radio voice right. that sounded kind of cool like a commercial in order to uh, to narrate the, the latter part of my script. Yeah, it, it, I think you did a really, really good job with the video from from my point of, you know, I'm not a huge tabletop top gamer, right? But I get exactly the problem you're solving. And I thought the video just did a really, really good job of, of explaining that. So kudos to you on that one. So the, the other thing that kind of popped up when I was kind of, you know, you know, clicking around your world here is that I would describe you as probably a super backer on Kickstarter. I mean, you've backed over 100 projects. When you're getting ready to back a project, what is it that you're looking for out of a campaign or out of a project creator that gives you confidence and trust that you're going to put money into this? Um, that's a good question. I mean, the, the quick one is whether other people have latched on and it's hit its funding goal. And I know that sounds silly, but people on Kickstarter have this psychological thing where they tend to really want to back projects that have already been hit the funding goal so they know that it's going to happen. Otherwise, they have to think about it some more. Mm -hmm. And is this thing really, like, if if other people don't trust it yet, should I trust it? Right. Um, and then and then some, a lot of times, and this is another strategy I did on my, on my reward, backer reward pledges, is a lot of people want to feel like they're getting a deal. Like, why should I do it now instead of waiting to try and find it after the Kickstarter's done and and whatnot. And that's where my strategy is. And uh, and there's controversy out there on this. But my strategy is the whole early bird psychological wording, where people want to feel like they're getting something special for being first. And that was part of my strategy for getting my snowball to go was my early bird and my super early birds. And other people hate that. But you know what, it works. And uh, to be quite honest, as a creator on Kickstarter, you're going to do what works to help you fund, get your project funded and moving along as quick as possible. Yeah, I, I'm a firm believer in early burden. I'm a guy who takes advantage of those. So controversy, I agree with you 100%. I'm, I'm trying to get my project funded. So I, I don't, exactly. I don't and care. it helps the snowball go initially. Exactly, right, right. right. It's all and you're giving those early bird guys a heck of a deal. Like it's a phenomenal deal. It's below my cost just to get that snowball started. And uh, so, I, I mean, these are all things that you're thinking about when you're putting together. When I want to go out as a backer and I want to look at things, I will back projects that have early bird rewards, mm -hmm. to, to answer your question. I, I will back projects that are local just to help support local people and local ideas. And on that note, when you see that I've, fund, I've backed over 100 projects, I haven't necessarily obtained myself a reward tier. In some of them, I'm willing to give my support just by throwing in a dollar or five dollars. 10 bucks 
to the cause mm-hmm. just so that they have another person added to their backer list and I don't expect anything in return. But that way I promote it, I tweet it, I'm a backer on the list and I think other people should do that because I know Kickstarter looks at that in the algorithm as to how many backers you have on it regardless whether they're choosing a reward tier or not. Mm-hmm. So how much do you believe you being active on social media helps with your campaigns? Because you do, And... and on the flip side of that, do you think you don't need social media to be successful on Kickstarter? I'm going to say you don't necessarily need it, even though I am a firm believer in social media. Um, I think you can do it through your family and friends and your network of people that you're connected to. Definitely being strong on social media helps enormously. Don't get me wrong, especially uh, Facebook. And the reason I say that is Facebook is very much a personal connection with your family and friends. And people, when you share something out, they'll tend to share it very easily to their network of people. Uh, Facebook ad uh, campaigns, you know, like pay paid ad campaigns on Facebook can be very powerful as well if you're willing to embark on that. And you can, because because you can highly target the demographics that you're going after on Facebook. So uh, I think that it's something that you should not ignore. I think it's something that you should look at. However, if you're not big on it and you're a little worried about it, it's not necessary. Like it's not, um, you can still succeed without you personally being strong on social media. Right, right. And and talk a little bit because I noticed you you know from again from the page you, you've gotten some good press on this or you you know you've 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 done a healthy amount of this sort of stuff. Was there a press outreach strategy at all that you uh, uh, decided to implement? Uh, I did. However, for a person who's a first time creator, that is a very difficult thing to do, especially if your product doesn't exist yet. Right. Um, so what you would be doing is using your prototypes and going out and trying to get some reviews and and press and i i don't discount the value of that i think it's huge uh because it again it's almost it's almost like an endorsement when people read the campaign because there are people who will come to your campaign page and they start scrolling on it and scrolling and scrolling and what they're trying to do is convince themselves uh like a understand what your product is about but b convince themselves that they should back this and that you know other people that it's a real thing that it's really going to happen and so um, having done a first campaign last year and then doing this as a second campaign, I was able to ride along those coattails uh, already of the, in, we'll call it the endorsements and reviews that I received in the press prior to this. And um, so I, I think there's massive value to that, actually. Uh, and interestingly enough, I noticed when, so what I started doing is I started sending out this last year samples of my product to gamers who had their own YouTube channels mm. and they were quite high on the social media world. Right. And, and some of them actually did reviews of my product. And I noticed the day that their videos went out where they were reviewing my product, my, the, the traffic to my website uh, would shoot up. Like right. it was, it was 100% like related to them releasing their videos. That's awesome. So what is your favorite game? <laughs> that's a good question <laughs> um it i'm very much a strategy person and i love long games that take many hours that you sit down and there's a lot of thinking involved it's not to say i don't like the luck games as well um 
However, when it comes to group games, we play things like, you know, Ticket to Ride and stuff like that, where every there are certain games where everybody gets it and everybody is interested in playing the game and, and the learning curve is not steep. There's so I like all games. I mean, that is my answer. And I'm not trying to be wishy washy here. I, I love playing all games, any opportunity I get. Uh, but it depends on the group that I'm going to be with, and I know what they would be interested in, then we end up playing those games particular to their interests and their attention spans. Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. I, I just can't comprehend the long play game just because I just don't know where there's a millisecond in my life that I'm not doing something. So like, <laughs> oh, sure, I, I'll just disappear for eight hours this weekend, honey. I'll see you later. Take care of the it kids. It rarely happens. Maybe once a year that I get to do it, but I do enjoy it. For me, it's decompression and right. being able to focus on something different than, you know, what I do every day. Sure. So so let's let's kind of wrap this up a little bit. You, you know, you've obviously squashed your goal. Um, you know you're going to fund. You've got 12 days to go. What is the energy kind of around you in the campaign right now? And what do you envision the next 12 days looking like? I'm quite excited right now. Uh, to be honest, I'm starting to look at my first stretch goal, which is uh, basically um, going to come up. I, th- I'm th- I know I'm going to hit it. So I'm already exploring things on uh, Alibaba right now in order to satisfy that. It's basically a bonus gift mm-hmm. that I'm giving to every single backer with their order. Uh, it's a storage bag in order to to hold their their Uberstacks game pieces, and um, I'm 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 anticipating what's going to happen in the last 48 hours. Typically, what I've observed from most campaigns is you have the first 48 hours are hot. It settles down until you hit the end of your campaign, and then your last 48 hours. Uh, there's another spike there, and I'm I'm quite excited to be honest about this ne- the last 48 hours and what that spike is going to look like, and what kind of goal I'm going to hit, and and already my calculations and my discussions because I'm I'm definitely in discussions right now with the factory for making this, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking oh my gosh like what kind of quantities are we talking about right now, and I'm already negotiating with them potential. Uh, better rates for me on a per piece basis because of larger quantities than what I was anticipating when I originally started this, which which makes it you know a little bit more um, well I won't call it profitable because it's not like you're making money on this it's more funding an idea and hoping it goes somewhere but it's it's definitely not going to cost me anything like I'm not going to lose out my first campaign. I'm telling you, it was a shocker with the shipping costs and fulfillment. I, no matter what you you plan into it and you think and you, you got it all figured out, you're still going to get nailed yep. by shipping exceptions and problems and fulfillment costs and weight and packaging. It's like, it's a nightmare. <laughs> you know, on that, what, uh, you know, as you're setting up, because you're in Canada, what, is there any major difference shipping wise from Canada to everywhere than, than it is from the States? Absolutely. So this time, I have done a deal with a U.S.-based warehouse um, where they're going to do the fulfillment for me. And I found somebody who has regular shipping sea containers coming overseas, and I'm able to hitch a ride for a fairly small portion to be able to get my product on pallets from the factory in China to the U.S.-based warehouse, where I'm anticipating it's going to be 80% of my fulfillment needs to occur, mm. and um, that's how I've tackled it this time. So, ironically there, one of the problems that I've had are people who say they want to do local pickup here in Canada, 
and they're wondering why I'm being slightly inflexible on the shipping charges, it's because I still have to pay shipping. I still have to get the product from the overseas to North America. And I even I'm, I told them I can give them a slight discount, but I still have to pay to get it here, even for myself. Like it still costs me money for me to get my hands on my own product. Wow. Yeah, that's the old shipping man that yeah it's funny uh you know we just finished up a, a fairly large campaign and and you know we had a lot of european shipping and the rates that we quoted just they just changed you know and the post office it's not like they you know for us here it's not like they put out some mass marketing campaign hey everybody it's more expensive to send to germany you know so it's just like ah oh, man but i know you, know you try to plan as much as you can you know you try to, but you're still going to get surprises when it comes to the whole fulfillment process. And one thing that if I were to do it again and I were to do a round three, I would try and make some kind of deal, I feel, with some something in the, in the European Union. Because them and that VAT tax that they have, the VAT, it's a big deal for them. And if you can have somebody locally fulfill it out of there and I could make a deal, I have a feeling that if my campaign was European-friendly, that I... I might even double the amount of backers that I would have right now. But it's just, yeah. it's such a big deal to them, that tax. Interesting. Well, that's interesting. I haven't thought about that. This can be something I'm going to look at. That's that's very intriguing. So It's huge. Yeah, that yeah, totally. I didn't even, really didn't even think about it. But yeah, I, I can see in your position, because I know Germany is big in, in tabletop games. And I know, you know, the UK. I mean, you know, you just, you've got a lot of, that's a lot of people playing games over there. Absolutely. Wow, interesting. So, all right, well, let's 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 wrap this up. I got, I think I got one more question. So, tell me what what do you envision the future looking like? Not just the next twelve days, but what does next year look like? And and, and are there anything brewing in your mind on on where to take more accessories for tabletop games? Uh, the future for me is actually feeling really good about my product, and the reason is when I first created it, I you you struggle with how am I going to get this out there into a game, like into retail stores. And I, I soon learned that dealing directly with retail stores was very cumbersome and not worth it. And it, it simply wasn't worth my time, even though I, I know you're trying to get your product out there and get some awareness. So you want to get to the distributors. This is the companies that the game retailers buy from, the distribution. Well, the distributors don't want to talk to you because the distributors decide that they um, they, you only have one product. You need to be with a company that has multiple products and then they place orders with those companies. So I ended up making a deal earlier this year with a publisher. And the publisher is a guy who, uh, has multiple titles from different game studios that he represents. And when he deals with all these distributors and what happens is they place an order, say every month with him and he can tack on things. So my product being a game accessory was awesome because it didn't compete with anything else out there. It was complimentary. And I'm excited about my relationship that is now just starting to bloom with my publisher. And he represents all of the distributors to get it out to the actual stores, the retailers. So the reason I'm bringing this up with you is because I'm doing something different with my manufacturing process right now, specifically the packaging. I have learned how how you have to package these things so that when the distributor gets the master case, the master box, that they can open it up and inside it are the retail size boxes that they can ship out to the retailers direct. And that retail box 
the way I've designed mine is actually a display box. It's mm. full color printed. So you open up the lid and you can plop that on a counter or a shelf. And it, it has advertising of what the product is within. It acts like a display. So that to me was very powerful because when I did my first campaign, I manually created that. And it took me a huge amount of hours oh, sure. in order to figure out how to get that packaged up. And it cost me a ton of money. And now making this part of the actual production process, it it's going to be, I'm excited because yeah, I'm imagine. thinking that this is going to take off because I've, I've simplified the whole process, Jeff. So when this campaign is done, it's relatively hands off for me. I have the factory who's going to ship this by sea container on pallets to the warehouse who's going to be able to break open these boxes and simply ship them out to retailers, distributors, and to the end backers easily because I've thought about the packaging ahead of time on how to make this all work. Wow, super smart, super smart. And, and I'm sure you, you have to have some, some pride in the fact of how much you've changed in just a year and a half from the first campaign to this one where you're just streamlining, getting better at it, getting better, you know, and and just taking off, uh, just getting this product exactly where it needs to be so that, to be successful. It's really great, man. Yeah, I'm super pumped about it. That, that to me is what's exciting about it right now is all of the things that I've learned mm -hmm. this past year, year and a half, not just from the, the first Kickstarter campaign, but it's even the, the things and questions that have occurred since in trying to promote my product out there in the marketplace. Because you're creating a product from scratch. Right. How do you get this product from scratch out there? And it's been enlightening. Oh, I'm sure. Well, David, I don't want to take up to, uh, any more of your time. This was a great, great conversation. And I know my listeners are going to just eat up all of your valuable, valuable information. It, it, it's been a pleasure, man. David, I appreciate it so much. You bet, Jeff. Anytime. Thanks. Man, how about that conversation with David, man? You can just feel his energy coming off uh, off of him, right? I mean, even even through a podcast like this, yeah, um, you can tell he's excited about crowdfunding. You can tell he's excited about Kickstarter. You can also tell he he knows that the future's bright uh, for, for him and his campaign. So, um, like I said, David, thanks again for taking some time out of your day to, to, to chat with me. And um, so I'm going to uh, close off today's episode with... Um, um, with a song, you know, one of my songs. And I've been doing this on every episode here so you guys can taste a little bit of the music that, uh, that I wrote a long time ago. But, um, but this song is called Sunday. Um, and uh, we, we put it on an album called The Race Stable Story back in the day. But um, So let's go ahead and check out this song. And um, I'll see you guys all uh, next week. And hopefully you guys have a great weekend. And uh, yeah, get those, uh, get those campaigns successfully funded. All right, guys. Have a good week.